Let's pray over the end of the end. Are you ready? Father, we just thank you tonight that you gave us the book of Revelation to teach us that we would not be ignorant of the times that we live in, that we would have prophetic insight, that we would have a sense of your view of our, our times, our generation. Lord, help us to understand the times we live in, and we thank you that the revelation certainly helps us to do that. Now, as we close it up tonight, Lord, we pray your blessing on this word, on the speaker, and on the listeners. We thank you for being with us as we share this mighty, powerful, incredible book, its end. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn to somebody and say, the end is coming. All right. You can be seated. I think summer has struck. It was 100 plus on my way here. When did that happen? All right. Now, last time, first of all, let me let you know that we're not going to be tracking the book tonight. For me to finish tonight... um, I'm not going to just go through the book like I have been doing, but I do have notes up here for you to uh, follow along with. But we're going to wrap this up, and what I wanted to do was sort of um, go back and cover the high points of what we've learned so far and then finish up Revelation. So last time we closed with the visible return of Jesus Christ to earth. Say with me, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to stop the great war of Armageddon. We're going to talk about that tonight. And he will usher in what is called the millennial kingdom. Uh, Millennium, of course, meaning thousand, the thousand-year reign of Christ. The Lord Jesus is going to rule the world out of Jerusalem. And the saints of God, the church, are going to rule with him. Now, that's hard to believe, but if the Bible says it, you can bank on it. Guarantee you, let God be true and every man a liar. This is what Jesus meant. Watch this carefully. When he told the two faithful servants in the parable of the talents, look at what he said to the two faithful ones. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful and trustworthy over a little. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in the joy of your master. Now, the whole context of the parable of the talents is that Jesus will return and he will want an answer, want us to give a reckoning with what we did with the gifts he gave us. So the context of the parable of talents is the return of Christ to the earth. So when he says you've been faithful over a little, well, when he returns, it's all being wrapped up. So he's got to be talking about the life we lived before he returned. And when is he going to put us in charge of many things? Because this context is the return of Christ. Well, apparently, since he is returning in this parable and then says to the servants that were faithful, I'm going to put you in charge over many things, he has to be talking about the hereafter, the millennial reign. I know what some of you are thinking, man, I hope I don't have to work. (laughs) Let me tell you something. There's manual labor and there's Emmanuel labor. And, and no, there won't be work by the sweat of the brow because that's part of the curse. But there will be assignments. There will be uh, divine activity that the church will be involved with. 
clearly. There it is in his words. Now, we arrived at the end of John's revelation. Before wrapping it up, I want to I hit the highlights of what we have learned. And uh, I believe I'm going to be able to do this. We're just going to skip over the, the high mountain peaks of the revelation. Now, the revelation is primarily concerned with the final seven years of history as we have known it, and it's called the Great Tribulation. That's the final seven years, the Great Tribulation. And that is the primary focal point of the book of Revelation. Those last seven years. The revelation, or I'm sorry, the great tribulation begins with Israel cutting a peace treaty with Antichrist, who they believe, that is Israel will believe, is an incredibly gifted man of peace. That will launch the great tribulation. That is the the opening of the great tribulation. And man, I'll tell you, if you taught this in the 1800s, if you were teaching the book of Revelation, there's a lot of things that, that were not there even then that are here now. How many presidents have we seen try to bring peace to the Middle East? So there is this constant attempt after attempt after attempt to do it. So you see the prophetic word in motion. You, you, see, you see the world sort of pregnant with this event Finally, ultimately coming to pass, but it won't be an American president. It'll be the man of sin. It'll be the Antichrist. He will cut a peace treaty with Israel. So said Daniel. We'll look at that when we go through the book of Daniel. The Revelation says it. Others throughout the word. And so keep that in mind. So here's this peace treaty. Then as the tribulation progresses, John reveals three sets of judgments falling on a Christ-rejecting, godless really wicked world. And that's not hard to imagine either, is it? And there are are 21 judgments in all, and they are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And, And to me, it looks like they progress with intensity and severity with each of the sets of seven until you get the bowl judgments are awful. Of course, they're all awful, but mega awful. Okay? They are devastatingly impactful, these 21 judgments, destroying Earth's ecology, wiping out a third of mankind, a third of vegetation, and a third of marine life. It breaks my heart to even read it because I love God's creation. But God's in charge, and I'm not. In spite of all these judgments, we saw over and over again in the book that man will remain utterly unrepentant. He will literally curse God as the judgments fall instead of repenting, proving just how ripe for judgment man really is when these judgments begin to fall. You know, God never judges until there's no other option, until he knows nobody's going to repent. Nobody is going to turn. The the world at large is going to continue down this path, and now their sin has reached the full, and I must judge. Now, meanwhile, while these judgments are falling, one after another like dominoes, Antichrist, with the help of a man called the false prophet who will be a religious leader, Antichrist will be political. The false prophet will be religious And with the help of this false prophet, sort of the Antichrist, John the Baptist, they will establish a worldwide rule only for a brief season. 
the Antichrist will use his false prophet, and a harlot, apostate, new age, super church that the false prophet is going to be leading. It'll be an apostate religious system. It will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. It will look good. It'll look impressive. It'll look like it's got money and pomp and splendor, but inside it is corrupt and wicked to the core. This super church, this apostate last days church, and I do believe I see that church forming right now. Whole denominations walking away from the Word of God. Denominations that used to be the the pillars and ground of the truth in the Western culture. Just walking away from the Word of God. Selling out to New Age mysticism. Selling out to political correctness. Selling out to the world's agenda. Refusing to stand on the Word of God. An apostate religious system that the false prophet will seize and the Antichrist will use it to help trumpet him and his cause into power. The false prophet will at the behest of Antichrist install a one-world currency and economic system that requires receiving a mark. We talked about it on either your forehead or the back of your hand in order to buy or sell. So easy to imagine now. In the 1800s, we couldn't have imagined it. There was no computer. There was no way to track worldwide every single individual on the planet and number them and track them and know them. But now there is. It's all there. A first century man saw a 20th century technology and didn't know how to explain it, but he did it the best way that he could. There will be a mark. The mark will go on the hand, on the forehead, and whoever receives this mark of the beast will be damned. Whoever refuses the mark will be persecuted and many will be martyred during the tribulation period. Many will be martyred. Now, during this tribulation period, 144,000 Jewish men will be commissioned by God to preach the gospel throughout the world, resulting in a huge tribulation harvest. You know, the mercy of God just blows me away. Because here's these judgments, 21 different judgments falling, so severe, so terrible. But what does God do? He raises up 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, and he says, go for it. And they preach the gospel all over the world, and they have divine protection on themselves. And there is a huge harvest of people, tribulation saints, that are born again during the tribulation period. But boy, do they face a rough time because they will refuse the mark which will put them on the radar of Antichrist system. You know, we're so easily tracked now. If we knew, all of you carrying a cell phone right now, an iPhone, there's people who know exactly where you are. You could move to another chair, and they'd know. Sneeze. Somebody says, oh, they just sneezed. They can track you. And, And John saw all this. First century John. No technology. He saw it. God showed it to him. And so these tribulation saints will refuse the mark. That will put them on the radar screen of the Antichrist system, and they will be tracked. And they will be hunted and stalked. And and the Bible reveals many martyrs come out of the tribulation period. We, We see them at the altar in heaven asking for God to bring vengeance on those that took their life for doing nothing but good. 
For the first three and a half years of tribulation, there's going to be peace with the Jews and Arabs per the Antichrist Treaty. He will step onto the world scene. Daniel says he comes out of nowhere. He suddenly arises. Daniel calls him the little horn. He suddenly arises. He steps onto the world scene. What brings him into world recognition overnight? He will cut this peace treaty. And, and people will be stunned, shocked, because right now the whole world is crying out for peace in the Middle East. And Zechariah told us that in the last days before the return of Christ, that Jerusalem would be the sore thumb of the entire world, and we're there. Amen. Go anywhere in the world and say, where is the, what is the greatest hot spot for conflict? They will say the Middle East, Israel, Jerusalem. That's what Zechariah predicted. The world for the first three and a half years of the Tribulation period will believe they have achieved peace at last. Ah, we got peace at last. It even says Israel will be without walls. Israel will be without walls. So secure and so certain will they be that this man, Antichrist, the man of sin, the personification of the devil, will have achieved peace. But here, watch this, at the halfway point, three and a half years in, Antichrist will change. He will change. He will walk into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He will go into the Holy of Holies, and he will declare himself to be God. I'm going to read it to you in a moment. The Bible calls this the abomination of desolation. Listen to what Paul wrote. It's amazing to me how the Bible agrees. You know, written over 1,500 years of time. 40 different authors, they did not get together and talk and say, let's write a holy book to deceive people. Amen. They wrote as the Spirit of God moved on them, and yet all these different authors agree. Watch this. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. That's the Antichrist man of lawlessness, he, the Antichrist, will exalt himself and defy every god that there is and tear down every object of adoration and worship. Why? Because he wants to be the only one worshipped, and that's what will happen three and a half years in. He will want to be the only one uh, that is worshipped. And look what it goes on to say. He will position himself in the temple of God, claiming, read it out loud with me, that he himself is God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 4. So there you have it. The Bible tells us he'll walk into the temple, he'll go into the Holy of Holies, and he will declare, I am God. This will totally shock the Jews. And it will serve as the trigger to the second half of the Great Tribulation, which to, to me is the worst half, the second one. Persecution, as soon as he does this, will be immediately unleashed on the Jewish people and all Christians. Jeremiah calls this the time of Jacob's trouble. It's sometime during the second half of the tribulation of people that John calls the kings of the east. Now, watch this. Sometime during the second three and a half years, a people that John identifies as the kings of the east will rebel against the Antichrist and unleash a 200-million-man army to march to the Valley of Megiddo for the great war of Armageddon. See, Antichrist is only able to put a death lock 
on the entire world for a very brief season. And then various kings of various nations say, you know what? I'm done with this. And they rebel against him. Now, this 200 million man army can only be China. It's an Oriental army, the kings of the East. That is pointing to the Orientals. And they will likely head to the Middle East with the motive of capturing it and taking its oil for itself. I really do believe that one of the triggers of end time events is going to be the oil crisis, it's going to be an energy crisis. And these various armies, kings of the east, the orientals, are going to say, you know what? We've got to have some oil. We've got to have some energy. So forget submitting to this antichrist guy. We're going to rebel. We're going to do what we want. We're going to go to the Middle East with this gigantic, unfathomable army, huge, 200 million men. Only China could cough that up. And we're going to take the Middle East and and, and get what we need. In fact, there will be various and sundry reasons held by all the kings of the earth for their coming together to the very same place. But the true reason they come together to the same place, the Valley of Megiddo, is that God brings them. Let me read it to you. Revelation 16, 14. Now here John is describing those frog-like spirits, those spirits that look like frogs, they are sent by God, performing signs, who go out to, look, plural, the kings, it's plural, the kings of the earth, to bring them together for the battle that will take place on the great day of God, the all-powerful. So these demon spirits go out under the allowance of God's providence, and they move on these various kings of the world, and they deceive them. And for things that they think, they think in their minds, well, I'm going to go for this reason. I'm going to go for that reason. We need to go do it because of this. We need to go do it because of that. And they may have their own reasons, but God who sees all is bringing them together for the moment of reckoning. For our God's in charge. The Lord God Almighty is in charge. Now, we also read that God also literally drives up the Euphrates River, which is a giant, huge river. God dries it up to make way for this massive 200 million man oriental army. Revelation 16, 12, and the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. They think they're going to take the Middle East. They don't know they're going to meet the Savior on bad terms. This is like, I don't want to belittle it, but the showdown at the heavenly corral. The geographical place of the gathering is revealed as Armageddon. In Revelation 16, 16, it says, Now the spirits... Those frog-like spirits gathered the kings and their armies to the place that is called Armageddon in Hebrew. And as these massive armies are drawn to the same place, I know this is hard to believe. It's hard for me to believe, but this is what God's Word says. An insane, preposterous 
Can I say it? Stupid idea enters their mind. They won't fight each other. They gather in Megiddo. They gather in this valley, but they will join hands together to fight the returning Christ. Now, I know some of you, you're looking at me like, I didn't get that. Say that again. They will see Christ. It says, every eye shall see him and those who pierced him. And as he begins to return to earth, they will see him and forget about fighting each other, and they will join together to fight the Christ. Everybody say, that's crazy, baby. That's stuck on stupid. That is insane. That shows you what wickedness will do to you. Wickedness makes you crazy. It makes you crazy. It destroys your ability to have common sense and use logic. Because I I got somebody up there in the clouds, the mighty Savior, and I'm thinking I'm going to fight him? How come I'm not falling on my face and saying, you are Lord, you are Lord, you are Lord? Because they're crazy. David saw this coming in Psalms 2. David wrote about this under the inspiration of the Spirit. First four verses, Psalms 2. He said, why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together. Here's the, here it comes. Against the Lord and against his anointed one. Who's that? Jesus. There's no getting around that. And look what they say. Let us break their chains. They, they being God and his Christ. Let us break their chains. They cry. And free ourselves from this slavery. You know what they're saying? I don't want to do what, he, what they want us to do anymore. I want to break the shackles of divine restraint. I don't want divine restraint on me anymore. I want to be out from under God and his Christ. And they call God's restraint slavery. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. Wah, <laughs> <laughs> you got to be kidding me. And then the Lord scoffs at them. That's Psalms 2, 1 to 4. The Lord laughs and scoffs at them. That's a precursor to the book of Revelation, those verses. Isn't that amazing? The prophet Daniel predicts the same thing. Listen to Daniel. At the end of their rule, now that they there is the Gentile nations, us, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king. Here he's describing Antichrist. A fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. No, Satan's power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does, but only for a season. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. That's Christians and Jews. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. Daniel goes on to tell us he'll be a master of deception, a master at it, defeating many by catching them off guard. Without warning, he will destroy them. Now look what it says in the next sentence. He will even take on the prince, capital P, of princes in battle. There you have it again. He will take on the prince of princes, the king of kings, in battle. But... Read the next four words with me. He will be broken. 
though not by human power. God crushes him. The Lord Jesus crushes him. But here you have the arrogant delusion of this man. And so no wonder the followers, his followers, those that have been under his spell, decide in the Valley of Megiddo, well, we'll just fight him too. They're only following their leader. Ultimately, the stupendously bizarre rebellion will be put down by Jesus Christ when he returns in his glorious appearing. And what a glorious appearing that will be. Christ will return to earth with his raptured church to set up the millennial kingdom. And in so doing, he will destroy the Antichrist and his armies with the glory of his coming. Let's read about it. Zechariah talked about the same thing, Zechariah 14, verse 1. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, oh, picture this, folks. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples uh, and, he, and he blessed them and he said, now don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit falls on you and you, you hang around Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit falls on you and, and then you go preach. And it says he lifted up his hands and he was taken up into the clouds and disappeared from their sight. And so they're gawking. They're, they're, you know, they're doing what we would all do. You know, he went up and they're looking up at that cloud and suddenly an angel appears and says, what are you looking at? He said, he said, he who ascended will descend in the same manner to the same place. Well, where, where did he lift off from? They were at the Mount of Olives. So here Zechariah says, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Where, where, isn't that cool? That's where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Amen. Jesus likes the Mount of Olives. He'll return. His feet will land on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, when Jesus touches it, will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. John reveals that at this time, the Antichrist and the false prophet get their dues. When Jesus returns, he lands on the Mount of Olives. It splits. It says in John, we read it, the very first chapter, first couple of verses, every eye will see him, those who pierced him will see him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. You know why they're mourning? Because they'll be going, oh, no, it was true, it was true. So it's a, it's a freaking out morning. It's a terrified morning. But look what happens to the Antichrist because he deals with him first and his false prophet. Chapter 19, 20 to 21, then the beast was captured. The beast is always the Antichrist. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, Antichrist, false prophet, were cast how? Alive. Say it again. Alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest, the rest being all those armies who said, let's fight him. The rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse, the white horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Scavenger birds have the feast of all feasts. 
because there is blood as high as a horse's bridle for endless miles. Jesus has returned. And he's not returning here as the Lamb of God. He's returning as the Lion of Judah. He's returning as the judge. He's returning as the one with whom we all have to do. That's Jesus. And so then the devil is cast into the abyss. But let me, just, let me just say, right now the lake of fire, there's nothing in it. There's nothing in the lake of fire right now. When we talk about hell, we always think, well, you know, the burning flames. But, but the, the lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels and created for the devil and his angels, by the way, not human beings. Amen. Originally it was created for the devil and his angels. That lake of fire has nothing in it right now. The lost are in Hades. Amen. It's sort of like a tormenting spiritual waiting room. And the Bible says death and Hades, when we get to the great white throne judgment in just a moment, will spew up the dead that are in it. And then those dead that were in Hades waiting for judgment will be judged, then cast into the lake of fire. So the first two beings to break open the lake of fire is the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire. Now, immediately following, the devil is also cast into the abyss. I do hope I get to watch that. I'm serious. I hate the devil. I hate the devil. Hadn't he caused you enough grief to hate him too? It's okay to hate the devil. Now, Look what it says, 20, Revelation 20, first two verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and said, boy, I like that, shut him up. I like to think that means he can't talk. Shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Amen. <clears throat> now, this will mark the end of the tribulation. When this happens, that's the end of the tribulation and the beginning of Christ's eternal kingdom, as referenced by Daniel 2.44 and many other scriptures we'll look at when we go through Daniel. Now, the glorious millennial reign of Christ follows. With Satan bound, won't that be a great day? Can you imagine going through, say, a year without one temptation assailing you because the tempter is gone? With Satan bound and Christ ruling the world in righteousness, our bruised and bloodied planet experiences a thousand-year respite. Now, let me just give you a couple of verses that describe this millennial reign of Christ because here's the devil. He's bound. The Antichrist and false prophet are in the lake of fire. Jesus has come to earth, King of kings, Lord of lords, to establish a theocracy. There will be no more democracy, no more uh, voting. You won't vote Jesus in or out. No more voting fraud because there won't be any voting. With Jesus in charge, you will like it. Amen. And, and so, so he establishes a theocracy, the rule of God. And Isaiah describes this time 
as, quote, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. No more carnivorous activity. No more creature-eating creature. Right now, every day we wake up in the world, what world do we wake up in? Everything in this world eats something else to live, including you. Don't look at me so innocent. You had that bacon this morning. We all eat something else that was alive. I, I know, unless it was vegetables. But every day, all creatures give their life up or their life is taken so that another one can live. You think you love nature. Well, I love nature, Pastor Jeff. It's not that evil. It's not that bad. It's not that w- Listen, you think nature loves you? You go get lost in the woods for a day. And tell me if nature doesn't try to kill you right off the bat. <clears throat> nature doesn't love you. Nature will look at you and say, lunch. <laughs> but that stops in the millennial reign of Christ. There can't be any more carnivorous activity because of what Isaiah just described. And war will cease to be. Isaiah says the Lord will mediate. Look at this. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. The Lord. (laughs) Now, that's a secretary of state that will get it done. Okay? The the Lord settles international disputes in in the millennium. And look what they will do. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, nor train for war any more. So the millennium is going to be a time of peace, joy, and comfort. Now, I can't explain what happens next. I can't give you a reason why. God is God. God does what God wants to do. But the Bible says at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, Satan's going to be loosed from the abyss for a brief season, and he's going to deceive the nations of the earth. People are born during the millennium. And not all of them will have hearts for Christ. And for some reason, God allows the devil out of his prison briefly to reveal the hearts of those who are really not with the ruling Christ because they buy into it and they rebel against him. There are literally going to be some who try to overthrow the throne of Jesus in the millennium. Zechariah 14, 16 says, tell us, or it tells us that during the millennium, people will be required to go to Jerusalem once a year to worship the king. All the nations, you've got to go to Jerusalem once a year to worship the king. That's what Zechariah 14 tells us. For those who refuse to go, punishment will come upon them, and this release of the devil for a brief season will expose who they are. Don't ask me to explain it. I'm happy to move right along after I've said that now. But it's there, and you can mark it down. It will happen. Now, following the millennium, the, great, the terrible great white throne judgment occurs. It happens at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. The one sitting on the great white throne is none other than Christ himself. 
His face, the Bible says, is so awesome and terrifying to the lost that heaven and earth flee away and they can find no place to hide. You cannot hide from the face of him who sits on the throne of the great white throne judgment. This is the moment of total, ultimate, forevermore reckoning. There will never be another judgment after this one. The great white throne judgment. Now, if you read about it in Revelation 20, we're going to read parts of it, but who will be there? Who will be at the great white throne judgment? All of the resurrected dead who rejected Christ in New Testament times and after and rejected the light they had in Old Testament times. God gave light in Old Testament times. You know what? How were you saved in the Old Testament? By faith. By faith in the revealed word and light that they had at those times. How are you saved in the New Testament? By faith. Through grace. And the great white throne judgment, when when that moment comes, that awesome, terrifying moment at the end of the millennium, it says that there will be a resurrection of every person that ever lived that died out of faith, that did not die in faith, that died lost, that died in rebellion, that died having stood against God's grace and rejected his offer for salvation. They'll be resurrected. Every human being, church, every human being that ever lived is going to be resurrected. How far back you want to go? You want to go all the way back to the furthest part of the Old Testament, all the way back to the times of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, everybody who died, and they did not die having responded to the light they had, will be resurrected. They will, be, they will come out of Hades and out of death. Death and Hades, the Bible says, spew up the dead that are in them. And that is every human being who's ever lived from Eden forward who died in rebellion against God. They'll all be there. Can you imagine that scene? They will all, John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The who's who's and the no who's. Everybody. Millions and millions and billions of people all the way back to Eden who reject, all of those who died in the flood, all of those who perished in Sodom, Every human being on some distant farm or some distant continent to the West, everybody in the West, everybody ever lived in America, died outside of faith, they'll be there. All will be there. Everyone will be there. They'll all be resurrected for this moment. And how are they judged? John tells us that books, plural, were opened. He said, I'm looking. I was looking and I saw books. I saw plural books. Books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. So you got books and a book. Now the books, I believe, are the books that contain the history of a person's life. The, biograph- the, the biographies of every person, what they did with their life, the books, record it. You really believe that, Jeff? Oh, do I believe it? It makes me tremble. I tremble at the word of God. I tremble at the Word of God. The Word of God 
moves me to the deepest core of my being. I tremble. Do I believe it? I know it will be. Jesus said this would be. And, and so here, here's going to be this massive, innumerable company of resurrected dead. And they're all going to know, why am I here? I'm here to answer for what I did while I was alive. No blood to cover the sin because they didn't turn to God by faith. And it's going to be Christ on that throne. And those books are the first ones open. And, and so I don't know how God will do it, but God will do it. And everyone's works will come before their face. And I believe when you're at that judgment, I believe your life will pass before you. How many times do we hear about people who almost die and, and it's, they say, my life passed before me in a flash? Amen. It'll be like that. It'll be like that. Their life will pass before them in a flash, and they'll be judged for what they did in their body. Paul said so. You will be judged with, for what you did in your body, the works that you did. The dead were judged, John says, according to their works, by the things which were written in the plural books. And the book of life then is opened. And you know what? No one standing there at the great white throne judgment is going to be in that book. No one. Because the great white throne judgment isn't for people who have been saved. So, but that book of life is open. Is that, that blank page after blank, I'm looking for your name, it's not here. For me, Revelation 20 and the great white throne judgment is the scariest portion of Scripture. I can't find another passage in Scripture that is more uh, sobering than this one. The book of life contains the names of those who died in faith, either in the Christ who was to come in the Old Testament or the Christ who had come in the New Testament and afterwards. That's who's in the book of life. And they are all judged according to their works. And, and I, I'm just reading the Bible. I cannot wrap my mind around this, but I totally believe it because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible. Jesus did. They'll be cast in the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14 to 15. Then death and Hades that held all those souls were cast into the lake of fire, and that's the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. How can you say that's metaphorical? How can any honest theologian say, well, you know, I think John's just speaking in a metaphor. He's just trying to give us an idea that, you know, when you die and you didn't receive Christ, you're not going to go to too great a place. No, John is not speaking metaphorically. It's a lake of fire. And I've got to tell you, you're totally conscious. You feel, you think, you remember, and you don't sleep, and it never ends. So when you preach the gospel to people, you share Jesus with people, if you really believe this, if we really believe this, this week we'd win 1,000 people to Christ. Now, are you ready for it to get good? 
In closing, say amen. amen. Now, again, I got to rush, but let me, let me do this. It, it gets good now. In Revelation 21, verse 2, we see an amazing thing. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem out of heaven is not the earthly Jerusalem where the redeemed will dwell throughout the millennial reign of Christ. It is the promised creation of a brand new heaven and brand new earth. I encourage you to read Revelation 22 when you get home and, and read the description of this incredible place. Um, Hebrew tell, Hebrews tells us that its builder and maker is God. The new Jerusalem is called the bride, the lamb's wife, the holy city, the holy Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus called it my father's house, the city of the living God, and, quote, a rejoicing. That's the new Jerusalem. This great city is presented as a bride adorned for her husband. It is spotless. It is magnificent. At some point after the millennium, are you ready? This city will come down from God out of heaven. We'll be in maybe the old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that's there now, and after the millennium and after this terrible great white throne judgment, suddenly we'll look up and see this city descending. And apparently it will be shortly after the heavens and the earth have passed away as Peter described in 2 Peter. It appears to be positioned somehow above the new earth. It's a heavenly city. The glory of God is there. Abraham looked for this city, according to Hebrews, and he said, this place is not my home. I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what Abraham was thinking. He was talking about this city, the New Jerusalem. The Old Testament and New Testament saints desire this better country, which is a heavenly one. Jesus said it's a place prepared for you. God the Father will be there. Jesus will be there. Abraham will be there. Timothy will be there. Paul will be there. Peter will be there. It's a city prepared for those that died in faith. There are in that place an innumerable company of angels, according to Hebrews. The 12 apostles will be there. The 12 tribes of Israel will be there. Within that city are many mansions. Jesus said he was going to prepare for us. And what a place that will be. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more cancer, no more heart disease, no more extra strength, etc., and headaches, no more migraines, no more arthritis, no more aging, no more wrinkles getting worse and worse, no more having to go and get this and that nipped and tucked and where did that come from? And my Lord, I didn't recognize, see that, that. When did that happen? You look in the mirror. <laughs> no, no more of that. You'll have a glorified body. All right? <clears throat> That's coming, church. There's some rough times coming before that takes place. But we look like Jesus. He, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Can we stand up together tonight? 
Everybody say, that was a good the end of the end, right? That's a good the end. Uh, that's right. The end is really of the beginning. Let's just thank the Lord. Father, we thank you that you've got a plan. You're in charge. And Lord, we read your precious word and it just blows us away. It amazes us at what you have promised for those who love you. And Lord, we just pray, help us to reach as many as we can in as many ways as we can, as quickly as we can. Lord, may it never be said a turning point that somebody went to hell because we didn't tell the truth in love. Lord, give us a great, big, net-breaking, boat-sinking load of souls. In the days to come, we thank you for it. 